Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. We present the very best panels, seminars, and other recordings pertaining to role-playing game design and publishing. This has been made possible thanks to Double Exposure and their leading game design convention, Metatopia. Now to the show. Episode 62. By association, mashups, the uncanny, and the weird. Recorded at Metatopia 2014. Presented by Kenneth Height. Six o'clock. I have no idea how long this will take, but we'll get started now. Um, the name of this panel, such as it is, this seminar, this thing that we're doing, colloquium, assuming that someone else talks, is um, uh, <clears throat> by association mashups, the uncanny and the weird toward an aesthetic of setting bricolage. Uh, the goal of this thing is to start talking in a world in which everything is mashup, as they say on the internet. Uh, how do we tell what's a good mashup and what's a bad mashup, specifically for role-playing game or game setting in general? Um, it's slightly different question for a novel setting or a movie setting or something, because obviously role-playing setting has to be fuller and contain more story. Uh, and that's just a fundamental quality of the medium. But how do we tell uh, when we do a, a mashup, when we do a combination, uh, a bricolage, how do we tell if it was done well? How, how do, what's good, what's bad? We don't know necessarily. And before we get started, obviously there are two sort of immediate and facile objections. There are the people who say uh, there is no aesthetic. Everyone makes their own aesthetic. Aesthetic is, is nonsense. It, it doesn't apply. Those people are deconstructionists and can be invited to leave because they're going to get nothing from this conversation. Uh, the other people say the only aesthetic is anti-aesthetic. The point of a mashup is to break the pre-existing thing, to deconstruct it, to break it down, to destroy it, to shame it, to call it into question, to subvert it, to detour it. And to these people I said, well you have an aesthetic. Your aesthetic is dada. You're done. Go forth and dada, but do it out of this room. Um, what I'm talking about is people who want to build something or want to look at something at least that has qualities from more than one source so you're not just saying we're doing a western game and all our job is is to decide if we want to set it in New Mexico or Arizona we're, what we're saying is we're doing a western game with elves we're doing uh, the hidden fortress with Flash Gordon the most successful mashup pretty much ever which is um, uh, Star Wars, of course. So if we take as a given that Star Wars is good, what is bad? Is just getting as close as you can to Star Wars enough for us? What did Star Wars do right? Did it do it on purpose? Apparently not. Um, and so I think we'll, I'll, I'll just start by offering a couple of sort of uh, roads into the question. And these are not answers. These are just sort of uh, ways that people have talked about two contrasting things. Right, and most of them I mentioned in the uh, in the panel description. So, if you read ahead, you'll know. Um, one of them is Freud's notion of the uncanny. Right, this is from 1919, right after World War One. He's very concerned with the uncanny, concerned with questions of horror, questions of 
unease, questions of what is wrong with everything. Uh, even obviously before World War One, Vienna was in a state of existential anomie that was pretty much unique in the West. But thanks to Freud, it spread to the rest of the West. Good job, Sigmund. Um, but his notion of the uncanny, uh, which he got oddly enough linguistically, which is as strange as you want to get, uh, the, the German word uncanny is unheimlich. And if you look at German dictionaries of Heimlich, which is a word that means homely or homelike or familiar, it also means secret or something that you keep to yourself, something you only talk about in the home, which means something that is hidden, something that is occult, something that is unfamiliar. It contains its own opposite. And he says, in a way, in sort of a prefiguring the postmoderns, that since the definition of Heimlich contains unheimlich, the concept of Heimlich is itself uncanny. The concept of the canny is uncanny. And Freud almost goes down a rabbit hole and he saves himself by going back to penises, which, you know, that's his, that's his lifeline. But he, he moves past an interesting concept of the uncanny that it contains its own opposite on the one hand. And in the course of looking for his own definition, which he never gets to, which is part of the fun of that essay, he goes past a couple of definitions which boil down to the notion that the uncanny is uh, that class of the terrifying which leads back to something long known to us, something once familiar. Uh, he quotes again in Schelling who says, something that throws a new light on the unheimlich. Uh, everything is unheimlich that ought to have remained secret and hidden but has come to light. And he quotes another uh, German thinker who says that the uncanny is an animate object that behaves inanimately or an inanimate object that behaves animately. And this is a guy who's very concerned with dolls. Because again, self-driven intellectual. So, uh, but, but that's where your uncanny valley comes from, is the question of what is human and what is inhuman. Where's that crossover point? And so, so you can sort of pull it out a little bit with Machen's definition of sin, that the natural behaving unnaturally, or the unnatural behaving naturally. And that becomes sort of a, 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 of a pin for the modern conception of the uncanny. And that, you know, feeds pretty much all German cinema for the next 20 years. And then we move forward to Lovecraft defining the weird. Which had to have a definition because there was a magazine about it. And you couldn't just say the weird is what's in Weird Tales because Weird Tales is printing Seabury Quinn, which is many things, but weird is not one of them. <laughs> the true weird tale, uh, says Lovecraft, has something more than secret murder, bloody bones, or a sheeted form planking chains. It has more than just tropes, more than just genre elements. Right? A certain atmosphere of breathless and unexplainable dread of outer unknown forces. And there must be a hint expressed with the seriousness and portentousness of a most terrible conception of the human brain, of a line in particular suspension or defeat of the fixed laws of nature. And then he goes on later on in the essay to say, the one test of the really weird is this, whether or not there be excited in the reader a profound sense of dread, which is limiting his concept, but he's Lovecraft and of contact with unknown spheres and powers, a subtle attitude of awed listening, as if for the beating of black wings or the scratching of outside shapes and entities on the known universe's utmost rim. And you'll you notice that Lovecraft is coming close to Freud again, even though Lovecraft was a non-Freudian, to say the least. Um, that the, uh, possibly by being such a perfect case study for Freud. Um, but, the, uh, but the notion that they, it's the connection of the outside and the known, right? That that's the connection that Lovecraft has made. That's what the weird is. 
that it's the blending of the outside and the known, the familiar and the unfamiliar. Go back to uh, Heimlich again. All right, now we move to my man, Arthur Kessler. This is 1964. This is after World War II. This is when we're breaking down all the old truths and trying to build them up again, right? We're no longer trying to explain what's going on. We're trying to come up with a theory that then will retroactively reveal what was always going along. And Kessler, he goes on in a, a great length about dissociation. So I'm going to sort of skip and summarize. Uh, the pattern underlying the creative act, says Kessler, is the perceiving of a situation or idea in two self-consistent but habitually incompatible frames of reference. And I'm going to give it away and say that I think Kessler gets us as close as we can get so far. Um, uh, the event in which the two intersect is made to vibrate simultaneously on two different wavelengths, as it were. While this unusual situation lasts, it is not merely linked to one associative context, but bisociated with two. I've coined the term bisociation to make a distinction between the routine skills of thinking on a single plane of the creative act, which always operates on more than one plane. It's a double-minded, transitory state of unstable equilibrium where the balance of emotion and thought is disturbed. And again, even though he's not trying to do Freud, you know, we're coming back around to the uncanny, the notion of the disturbance as a fundamental quality of this universe. Uh, the procedure to be followed, and here he lays it out, so if you are Arthur Kessler, you can make a mashup, apparently. The procedure to be followed is this. First, determine the nature of your two frames, M1 and M2, by discovering the type of logic, the rules of the game which govern each matrix. And this is where I think that we are getting really close as a lip crit guy. Often these rules are implied as hidden axioms taken for granted. The code must be decoded. The rest is easy, which is a lie. Find the link, the focal concept, order, situation, which is bisociated with both mental planes. Lastly, to find the character of the emotive charge, which is where he's superseding Lovecraft. Lovecraft says only dread is weird, obviously. You can have weird humor, weird romance, weird anything, as long as you had that connection of outside and familiar, outside and, and, and natural. You find the character of the emotive charge and make a guess regarding the unconscious elements that it may obtain, because Kessler is still trying to unify everything. But then later on in the same book, he says, um, uh, He's, he's talking about art as opposed to science. The matrices within which the artist operates are chosen for their sensory qualities and emotive potential. His bisociative act is a juxtaposition of these planes or aspects, not their fusion, to which by their very nature they do not lend themselves. Uh, da, 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 da. That reiterates the first thing. The previous independence of the components that went into a good combination is a measure of achievement. The breakdown is not caused by establishing gradual tentative connections, but by amalgamation of two realms as wholes, the integration of the laws of both realms into a unified code of general greater universality. And again, he sort of defeats his own argument there when he talks about a greater universality, even though he says art literally depends on that not happening. <laughs> and then most recently in 1989, Bruce Sterling, uh, becoming frustrated that no one was paying attention to him, announced that he was quitting, as he does about every four or five years, and was going to make Slipstream happen. And, you know, you do it often enough, eventually it happens. Slipstream has sort of happened. Uh, of course, no one has got a definition of Slipstream. There are about four that I found when I was digging around. But again, I, I was taken, I was, I was interested that uh, Sterling begins with the notion that it creates a a feeling 
It is a fantastic, surreal, sometimes speculative on occasion, but not rigorously so. It is a contemporary kind of writing which has set its face against consensus reality. And this just seems, of course, like infantile deconstruction when you read it. Uh, the kind of writing that simply makes you feel very strange. Um, uh, and then he talks about some techniques, which we'll maybe get back to. Uh, a very uh, sort of stodgy critic named uh, Richard Horton said, uh, Slipstream is more than cross-genre, otherwise a uh, thing where a robot solves mysteries would be Slipstream, and that's not. That's just a robot solving mysteries. Um, the key is the unexplained for Horton. SF tries to make the strange familiar, Slipstream tries to make the familiar strange. Uh, Meanwhile, John Kessel and James Patrick Kelly say Slipstream is the beginnings of a genre, but it is at point a psychological and literary effect that cuts across genre in the same way that the effect of horror, the Heimlich, manifests in many different kinds of writing. Where horror is the literature of fear, Slipstream is the literature of cognitive dissonance and of strangeness triumphant. The hardest thing to put a finger on is the strangeness that Sterling identifies as the essence of Slipstream, it has been called a matter of making the familiar strange of the strange familiar. Carol M. Schwiller says, Stranging the everyday is the motive for her fiction. So we have gone a century of intellectual development to get all the way back to South German uh, psychological critics that Freud was attempting to uh, surpass. So that's sort of where we are, and I think if you look at everyone's looking at it, we are left with the notions, two notions. Uh, first, that there has to be a collision between a known and an unknown, a familiar and an unfamiliar, a thing we got and a thing we don't got, a hidden and an open. And the other thing is it has to create a sensation, and Lovecraft says it has to create a sensation of fear, and Freud says it has to create the sensation of the unheimlich, and Sterling says it just has to make you feel strange. And I think we can broaden that out a little bit. We can say that there are settings that make us feel all manner of things by way of the mashup. And we can even have settings that make us feel familiar, but we don't know why they feel familiar, in the way that Star Wars felt familiar even though we'd never seen it before. It felt familiar because it deployed the trappings of something very familiar, Flash Gordon and Space Opera, to tell an unfamiliar story. But the story, ironically, becomes the thing that's hidden. The fact that he's doing... Uh, 1950s and 60s Japanese samurai movies, that's the thing that's a little bit hidden. The hidden fortress is literally hidden in Star Wars. Everyone watching Star Wars in 1977 recognized Flash Gordon. Very few of them recognized the hidden fortress. And so, that may be part of our bricolage aesthetic. That may be part of our concept that we have to have a hidden and an open. We have to have a thing that we recognize and a thing that we maybe don't recognize. A thing that our audience is going to know and a thing that our audience is not going to know. And in talking back and forth with a couple of friends before the panel, I came up with a possible rule, or maybe a guideline, that one of the things has to be story, and the other thing has to be not story. That if you're blending two stories, you wind up with them with an interference wave, right? If you're trying to do the hidden fortress and the searchers, you're like, well, you're going to or you're going from? What's the story here? You're looking for a fortress or a kidnapped lady? Well, you got a princess in the fortress. I guess you could be doing that. But now the Comanche shouldn't have a fortress. And, and so you're, you're winding up like trying to explain everything to yourself, and you're never going to get anything explained to your players. 
But if you say, we're going to do the hidden fortress in the West, it doesn't need to be the searchers, right? We know there's cowboy, cowboys and, and, and Indians and guys on horses and that they're, the hidden fortress is going to be Maximilian or it's going to be steampunk spiders or it's going to be something. It's going to be a hidden fortress that is somehow part of this, you know, of, of this world. And, you know, a, a bunch of Confederates who don't know the war is over, a time bubble where there are dinosaurs. You know, you don't know what it's going to be. It's in the West. It's a, it's a frontier land. And, and so I think that that might be a, a guideline, and I don't insist on it. I'm, I'm not even sure that it's uh, a guideline yet. It, it may just be a thing you might think. And then the last thing that I looked at in terms of trying, I came with a lot of different analogies, because that's how we build a new critical language. We go back to old critical language, like I went back to uh, literary language to talk about gaming. Um, and I think that when we think of languages that exist to describe combinations, we can think about color, we can think about um, uh, um, laws of composition, right? Art, design, layout. And we can talk, and I think it's kind of interesting to think about it in terms of cooking, right? Because if you put a bunch of ingredients all cut up to the same size into a pot, you have a stew. And that can be good, but it's not going to have a flavor necessarily. It's going to stick to your ribs. It's going to satisfy. But there's no flavor to it. But if you have one big piece of meat and you rub it with spices, now you're getting somewhere. Now you have a roast, and the roast has flavor to it. Or if you have potatoes on which you put herbs, now you have a thing. And so I'm thinking there may need to be, and like I said, you need a story and a thing the story moves through, which we're not calling a setting because the setting has our whole bricolage. It's a thing story moves through. It's an environ or a surround. I, I think that maybe we can say that we need a roast and we need spices. We need a broth and we need ingredients. We need a thing you're flavoring and the flavors. We need a dominant comp uh, meat and a dominant flavor that enhances the meat. And I, I think that maybe those are sorts of ways to talk about bricolage, about how to take unrelated components. Because what, what we all want is what Kessler wants. What we want is two completely unrelated things. We figure out the secret thing they have in common. We make that the center of the universe. We make the hidden fortress the Death Star. And once we've got that locked, we can map everything to that point, and we know where everything goes in our universe. Once we know that our universe is Conan the Barbarian, 1948, we know where everything goes in our universe. Once we know that our universe is born identity with vampires, we know where everything goes in our universe. But, uh, th these are my bricolages, my, my setting mashups. Uh, there, are, there are other things. And, and I think that uh, it can be interesting to look at something that, that's a bunch of components and you pull it out and you, and you have to make a game out of it. Uh, Sweet Agatha, obviously, uh, Kevin's game, is uh, a, a great opportunity for bricolage because there are a lot of elements that are all aesthetically linked but are not thematically necessarily linked until you link them. And you decide what the through line is there. I, I think that's, you're adding the story to the flavors that... I mean, he's, he's giving you the spice rub and you, you have to bring your own chicken, right? Um, I, I think that there's there's ways to look at how to, how to build that, how to present it and, I, and I'm kind of interested now that I have um, uh, shown my, my gorgeous uh, literary plumage and I've talked about food while uh, you're eating. 
and we and I've sort of you know opened up the door to what the questions are. I I kind of like to see how you guys respond. Is it you know you're crazy? There's literary theory can teach us nothing. I didn't do it that way, and mine was great. I, I want to hear what, what your what your comeback is about. Yeah. So, on the one hand, you sort of define what like uh, Heimlich game is going to be, or, or like what something that becomes an annual lyric. Uh, what do you call sort of the other end of that? Like, uh, I, I love French way versions. Yeah. Fun way, I don't feel a bit of that because it's a stew. It has all these elements thrown in there. Uh, it's telling a bunch of stories at once, even though the dragons usually end up dead in any of them. But it's like, is that just like, is it? If you can't call that a matter, then what do you call the other end where it's just like, here are some fun tropes to play with, tell your story. I would call something like feng shui, which is, as you say exactly, here are some fun tropes to play with. I would call something like that, I wouldn't call that bricolage, I wouldn't call that a mashup, I would call that um, a uh, laundry list sounds pejorative, but I don't mean it to be. I would call that a... Um, uh, uh, a, a dictionary, an, an encyclopedia, a a compendium, right? Instead of a, a mashup, I would say that with feng shui, it's like anything you've ever seen in an action movie is in this game. But it's all the same flavor; it's all lined up the same direction. Feng shui is not martial arts movie crossed with another thing, or nor is it King Lear martial arts. And maybe you can't say King Lear is a setting. Maybe King Lear is not an aspect of a setting. But maybe if you look at a setting and you say, no, our setting has got three powers that are connected to a fading empire. And that's our King Lear's setting. And it also is three warlords in ancient China. And so we're doing Wuxia King Lear. Now we're moving into bricolage. We're taking, we're taking elements out of feng shui and we're using that to build our bricolage. Right? So I, I think Feng Shui does, does something that a lot of other a, a lot of other uh, games try to do, and some of them do it well. Chill, for example, is the classic example. You know, anything you've ever met on um, the late night theater creature hour, you can drive around in your van and take down with your veins in chill, right? It's it's it, supernatural has much the same feel in the TV world. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to stick to games. So the chill setting is, is one where all the monster mashes out there monster mashing around. And you can fight all of it, or none of it, or some of it. And I, and I think that those games depend so very strongly on their mechanics as opposed to their setting, right? I mean, the reason that the setting is clever in feng shui is because you need a reason you can have uh, the world of swordsmen and the world of feng sayuk and the world of um, Korean heist films all happening in the same game. And that means you have to have time travel. So that's that sort of, all of that flows from the same design consideration. Whereas a game like, or a thing like Star Wars, you have different things going on, and it doesn't all flow from the same design consideration. Does that make sense? Is that, yeah. Okay. How do you go about making the kind of, or what would have been the, the uncanny, but has become the homely again, bring it back around? So I'll use the example of Lovecraftian gaming. Let's be honest. A lot of people don't get excited about shotguns anymore. Right. Um, yeah. What, what, that, what that, does one do to bring back that that spark of yeah. the first pure weirdness? And, and I think that that's an interesting question because once a mashup becomes so familiar, like Star Wars or like Lovecraft, who was mashing up the gothic and science fiction, we 
it, it becomes Heimlich. It becomes, and so if we see Star Wars, we're now like, well, what are you going to mash up Star Wars with? Oh, Star Wars in Cowboys. That's cool. It's like, no, hold on. We, Star Wars was already a mashup. It, it can't be an agreement. Well, now it can be because it has its own, you know, the, the, the roast has become so familiar that now it's a, it's a tradition. It's something we look forward to smelling. And, and so I think that to make it unheimlich again, you have to either use narrative tricks, which aren't really part of the question of setting, right? There are things that you do in, I mean, Freud talks about repetition and coincidence. And, you know, do that in the game, and that'll screw with people plenty of times. Um, but in terms of how do you put shoggots into your setting to make them unheimlich, you make them behave not like shoggots. Or you make something that should not ever be like a shoggot sort of like a shoggot, right? So if your setting is, um, someone give me something that isn't like shoggots. An orphanage. An orphanage, okay. That's a little shoggothy already. <laughs> But no, let's say that it's, it's, it's plucky kids. It's, it's like, you know, the great brain, the, the, the teen detective, it's the Goonies. It's that, right? So they're, they're plucky kids, you know, the stand by me. The worst thing that could happen is that they may hit puberty and touch a corpse, right? <laughs> but the fat kid is always a little fat. And his roommate keeps changing. We don't know why. We don't know what's going on. And then we mention that the fat kid um, has bright green eyes. And you know, and we start hinting that the fat kid is Shagathy. The fat kid is part of our friendly <coughs> kid adventure demo. Ah, oh, look, it's fatty, it's fatso. You know, there's always a fat kid. But if you make the fat kid Shagathy, you brought your Shagath back around to unheimlichness because in the mashup, the Shagath becomes the unfamiliar, the, the the element of the element of unnatural in the normal. Conversely, if you wanted to do a world in which you have domesticated shagas, right? That becomes unheimlich. Because it's like, no, shagas aren't domesticated. They're horrible, slithery monsters. And the last time they're domesticated, they rebelled against their keepers and destroyed their whole civilization. And so you have something like the zombie movie Fido, right? Where we, we, we are, zombies have become frickin' heimlich today. But you watch Fido where they're literally domesticated and it creeps you back out again. That was an amazing movie. Yeah, and, and so when you see when you see shagas, you want to you want to say, okay, how do we make them Heimlich? How do we make them weird again? Where, where do we make them Heimlich? We say, oh, don't worry, the Navy powers all of its deep diving submarines with shagas. It's really effective, and we never lose any submarines anymore, ever. They go down, they go off radar. We're worried, but nope, they come back up just as good as ever. And you're like, well, I I, I didn't like that. That seemed uncanny. And, and so what you do is you put it into a, a domestic context, and because it is a fundamentally unheimlich thing in a domestic context, and this is all Freud, and Freud is wrong about everything except the uncanny. And he's wrong about the uncanny eventually, because it's a longer essay than just part, the part that I quoted. But when he's right, he's right. And, and so you, you take those elements and you can pull them back around. So if you've got an element of the, of the, of the setting that you really want to put in, if you want to put Lovecraft into a setting, you have to either, I think, go back to first principles, which again is not really the spirit of mashup, or you have to make sure that the way it is used makes one or the other thing unfamiliar. Right? You have to create that 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 friction, that frisson, that sense of the strange, that sense of the uneasy. And if you note, every single one of these guys comes down and eventually just talks about sense. Even Kessler, who has a, a freaking graph in his book to show you how to do it, says 
you have to decode the code. You have to guess at what the symbol is. And what that means is you have to think about it until it feels right. Right? And even Kessler says this is a transitory state. And he thinks once you unify it, you create an electromagnetism. You don't have electricity, you don't have magnetism, you have electromagnetism. Hurrah! But even he admits you can't do that in art. And the, the, the great thing about art is you keep doing it over and over and over and over again. And so you keep doing uh, the Gothic and the numinous. You do the beautiful and the sublime. You do love and hate. You do uh, blood and wedding. You do whatever it is in, a, in an art context. And in each vocabulary of art, you can keep having the same bisociative discovery. He talks about puns and jokes as bisociation, right? That, you know... Um, uh, once purple and conquered the world, Alexander the Great. That is a association because grapes do not signify conquest. Alexander the Great signifies conquest, and the overlap is literally the fun, right? And, and so that's that, that that's his way of illustrating just you know the sort of very basic structure of it. And, and, so, and so I think if you start thinking about that that notion of the incompatible and finding their compatible point, you're sort of getting back over to it. That was kind of three sides around the barn to answer your question. But like Freud, I think I answered it and then got lost in my own verbiage. Do you think that's fundamentally what happened to cyberpunk? That it became too familiar, so it was no longer uncanny? I think the problem with cyberpunk is it aged out. <laughs> I mean, everything that was going to be like super trendy and awesome in the distant future became available on my wrist for $9. But, but, <laughs> but, but, that, but that's the point, that, that in the 70s and 80s, it was so unbelievable and yet familiar. We're talking about talking yeah. to each other, communicating, things like that. And then eventually the technology just caught up that it just became common. I think one of the things about cyberpunk is that cyberpunk is also a very successful mashup because it's the, the noir detective genre mashed up with uh, computer hacking. And again, the noir detective is a story. Computer hacking is a scenery. We'll call it scenery. I like that. And so... Cyberpunk begins as a, as a mashup, and that's where a lot of the, the, the strengths come from. And you look at the individual stories, they're more or less clearly that. And then as the, as the creative uh, depths of that are rapidly plumbed, and as um, uh, the, the, the world moves past it, and the notion of cyberspace from, uh, you know, pattern, uh, from uh, uh, Count Zero and the Neuromancer and all those just become ridiculous, and hilarious uh, period pieces like Flash Gordon Spaceships. Right. Um, that's what happens to cyberpunk. And William Gibson says that's why he was just writing spy novels. So the same novels he was writing, it's just that everyone has the tech that only, you know, um, uh, his, his, his um, uh, Deckers had back in the day. Um, yeah? Um, so, sort of by definition, uh, mashups are time when you can't do that match forever. Or right. Not say match, it becomes an ingredient for the map. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, we're very few of us are producing anything permanent. <laughs> but in terms of using them like in for games, I think what once completely becomes a fluffy is no longer terrifying to a player. You know, like player and like the, the, when anyone one between investigators is a joke, it lost something from when that was sort of the thing. It didn't happen in games, right? Um, is there any way to sort of realize when that's going to happen, especially if you're running? Gain the goal out of the career and gain experience, experiences. And like a lot of a lot of more recent books, of, uh, like Rails of Dodo, um, I would mean, advice for you do going outside of the to keep ideas, I guess, timeless. Yeah. Is there a way to tell when okay, this this is when of course my players are going to start making 
Is the way to artificially extend the life of a mashup, or just to realize recognize the sell by day? I mean, that's an interesting question because sort of implicit in our concept of the aesthetic of the bricolage has to be the question of how do we know when it's gone bad? Smell, smell this setting and see if it's gone bad, right? You know, um, and until we know what bad smells like, we may not know that. Right? I mean, we may smell the setting and say, nope, that smells just like um, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean 4. <laughs> Bad already. <laughs> Free battened. Um, and, and we don't necessarily know. I mean, until we know what's good we, and what's bad, we can't know the answer to your question. And I, I mean, I, I you know, I am a, um, uh, a person with a, a strong degree of confidence in my own aesthetic judgment. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but I am not someone who says you don't need to think critically about art. You don't need criticism. You don't need literary criticism. You don't need art criticism. Because an informed critic, an aesthetic, tells you more than you thought you knew. Right? You can go back and you can read Edmund Burke, right? 1757, the distinction between the beautiful and the sublime. This is a criticism that was Cutting Edge in 1757 was old hat by the mid-1800s and is dead now. But because it's fundamental criticism, you can still learn stuff by reading it, right? So I think that a critical approach is, is necessary. And, you know, one critical approach does not necessarily subsume another successful critical approach. But until we know what bad smells like, we're not going to know when our setting starts to smell bad. I mean, you, and we can say in your individual subjective judgment, it smells bad when you open the book up and you're like, right? Or you look around your players and they are not expressing the emotion that your story is telling, but they are expressing a different emotion. And not the normal bored emotion. They're expressing a distaste emotion, right? And when you see that happen, maybe that's a sign. But a aesthetic tells us how to avoid that happening, just like it says don't wear yellow with purple unless you're the Minnesota Vikings, and ideally not even that, right? But we have we have color law that tells us don't do flashing uh, uh, opposite colors, because it, it's going to look garish. And if you want something garish, because it has to be seen from the, the, the cheap seats in a football stadium, fine, but what we're producing is, is not meant to be that. It's meant to be seen across the table. It's meant to be seen and lived and experienced. And just like you know, the the, uh, the Vikings may have interesting colors to look at for a bit, for a highlight reel or even a whole game, you don't want to spend several months looking at purple and yellow next to each other. You know, you don't want to be the Vikings towel guy. Um, and so you need to, if you're making your game. You need to think about what are going to be the equivalents of that. What's going to look bad together, and what's going to what's going to smell conversely like roast chicken with uh, herbs de Provence, right? What's going to be something you always want to smell that the, the, the you always can get that reliable? What what is your, your Lovecraft, which you can get back to over and over and over again just by plugging it back in the Lovecraft socket? I find, um, you know, the the notion that people who cannot be scared by Lovecraft means that they are Cowards and their GM is bad more than it means anything about Lovecraft. That's a different panel, really. But um, <laughs> anyone else have any thoughts about setting bricolage, about aesthetic, about how we judge, how do we know? 
more questions that I can riff on and hopefully get. Okay. You, you postulate that uh, you need one set, you need one story and one scenery. Yeah, postulate is maybe even strong, but I, I hypothesize. Uh, and that if you have too much story, it's not going to work. Right. But, yeah. If you have too much scenery. Yes. That I know you can. Right? I mean, if you think about uh, maybe the D&D world that you ran when you were 13 or the cover of any heavy metal album or any art form in which excess is its own virtue. And again, if that's the aesthetic you're going for, if you are wanting your game to feel like the cover of a heavy metal album, if you are Destiny, <laughs> then good for you, right? You are aiming at a specific emotional moment in time, that moment when we were 12, and this was awesome. And if you can get me back to being 12, that's great. I love being 12. I thought being 12 was fuck because I knew no better. I'm not keen on going back to 15, but 12 was terrific. <laughs> and, and so but for someone who is not interested in living in a heavy metal cover, you can absolutely have too much. Just like you can put too many spices into a soup, you can put ninjas and Cthulhu and robots and eye lasers and the 101st Airborne and uh, sad ponies and all the other things that I have liked ever in a game together. And even in feng shui, you don't usually do all of feng shui at once. right? What you have is a menu of, of, of options. You have a, a wide variety. It's a Chinese menu, literally. You can get you know, the, the chicken dish or the pork dish or the seafood dish or the vegetarian dish, you're not usually going to get a pork, seafood, vegetarian, chicken dish. You might, but you're probably not. And if you did that, you'd go, well, that was kind of weird tasting. I don't know if I want to do that again. And in feng shui, you, you don't usually play with every single element of the setting. You may do a travelogue where one day you're fighting the ascetic, and one day you're fighting the monkeys, and one day you're fighting the, 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 the secret uh, the key masters, and you know, back and forth on the other thing, and one day you're doing a Korean heist thrower, and one day you're doing a Bollywood um, uh, action flick in one day, you know, whatever it is. But the whole setting is not partaking of that, because you're always just doing one thing, butt-kicking through a set of scenery. But I, I think that just experientially you can, and how you know if that is too much is, I don't know. And I suspect that the answer is if there are more than two strong flavors, that's too much. And that is just an aesthetic judgment. And it's not even a theory yet. And I, 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 I hasten to add, I don't have, there's no answer in blue in the back of this, right? I'm not judging you all for not knowing what I came here to ask you. But I, I think we have to think about that as designers, because if we design blind, I mean, if, if, we're, if you're Kevin, you're going to obviously hit it out of the park every time, but not all of us are Kevin, right? So it's it's going to, we're, we're going to wind up saying, oh, I, I I wrote up all those ninjas, and it turns out they're stupid. <laughs> they don't actually serve the setting at all. They're a problem. I can take them out and give their jobs to the cowboys, or whatever. Right? There. Is there a level at which different genres have different uh, tolerances for scenery, and for additional scenery, or like, or, or you know, the, that uh, that there are certain genres or certain story types that can take. A greater or smaller amount of scenery and like and make it work. I mean, the the, the story the, the line we always had for superhero stuff was that like if you had a superhero game, you had a generic system. 
because yeah. supers have to be able to do to everything. Fight everything. Yeah. There's robots one week and there's more the next week and there's you know all these things. And because of kind of the inquisitive nature of the superhero genre to absorb everything else around it, there is in fact a version of supers that reflects many different kinds of scenery. Yeah, supers is that are a virtue or is that a supers are a really interesting edge case. And because we all look at superhero universes, and we look at the Marvel universe, and we look at the DC universe, and those both look broadly like successful mashups, right? Right. And I'm reluctant to say that we're wrong. You can just argue aesthetically and say, "Oh, we're obviously wrong." No one is simultaneously reading Doctor Strange and Alias, and you know, the, the, you're not reading that into the whole universe, right? Genre that's so broad. That yeah, any more than you're reading a romance set in New York City and a horror story set in New York City and a murder mystery set in New York City and a travel guide set in New York City and saying, "Well, it's all part of the New York City genre." Right. Yeah. It's like not really. And so I think that another part is because superhero stories are so basic and plain that they are, you know, identify moral problem, have fist fight. That they can stand more spicing up. Like you can put more spice on a chicken than you can on a lamb, right? right? Because the chicken absorbs more flavor. And, and I think superheroes are, are a really interesting edge case because you look at something like the Silver Age, which there's no way in any legitimate aesthetic that that should have worked. You got your talking gorillas, you got your Martians, you got your Batmans, you got all that, especially after Batman became dark and gritty. You know, when Apparel and, and, and Neil Adams start darkening Batman. And it's like, I am very confused about the DC Universe now. Um, and, and I think that the, because this, the, the, the Marvel Universe, ironically, aesthetically, is much more matched because it all comes out of the 60s and 70s. It all comes out of that off-art, um, uh, you know, uh, panic, pre-disco uh, sensation, that, that late 60s explosion, which is its own aesthetic. But the DC universe just makes no damn sense. And, and but you know, obviously, all of us who are fans of the DC Silver Age look at it and say this: this is a successful mashup. This, you have to explain this like you're explaining Star Wars, Mister Man. Right. So what you're saying is, is that it's uncanny. <laughs> I don't think the DC universe is even uncanny. I mean, Freud says there are horror stories that aren't uncanny; they're just horrible. <laughs> and he's right. I mean, and Lovecraft says the, the the true weird tale needs more than ghosts and clanking chains and, and things like that. When you have a story of ghosts and clanking chains, you say that's a horror story. But maybe we need a definition of genre that kind of accounts for that level of difference when we're actually determining whether this bricolage works. Yeah, and, and I think there is we a need kind to, of genre that is so. And, and there may be a time factor quality, right? Because the thing about a superhero universe is. They are all that the DC universe specifically. It accreted, right? It accreted the Silver Age accreted over thirty years of storytelling. Each bit made sense in one twenty-two page interval sense. It made narrative logical sense. <laughs> Superman's turned into an ant, you know that kind of thing. That could happen. Uh, it, it, and then it's like, well, there's super ants wandering around. Okay, we'll put those in, and then maybe they'll fight Green Lantern or whatever, right? But and it made sense as it was happening, and then because we added it to an individual moment that made sense, we didn't have to deal with it all at once. But if you look at things like the Valiant Universe or all those attempts to sort of post hoc build a super a silver age, right. they almost all look like shit. Right. Right? They all smell bad. They all smell fakey and tinsulate like, oh, this is working with that. And something like the Champions Universe began feeling fakey, and then because it took twenty two years, twenty five years to evolve. By now, it kind of feels lived in. It kind of feels realer right. than it did. 
And so maybe there's a time element. Like I said, it's inquisitive. It picks up whatever else happens before the And so I think that there, there is a time element that we can maybe think about in terms of, of, of that. And obviously that's not necessary, but it may be a thing that, you know, like some spices would taste terrible if you put them on now, but if you put it on and let it grind for 24 hours, you put it on slow roasted for eight hours, now you're talking. You know, you put your barbecue rub on, the meat's going to taste weird, but once you've barbecued it for eight hours, it tastes phenomenal. Maybe these, the Silver Age is our example of a multi-spice rub right. that would otherwise fight with itself. But I think that that... Or Lucha, as or another, Lucha. another long-running... Yeah, right, inquisitive. Except a lot of other... And, and, but again, Lucha, and partly because Lucha is, is so very grounded all the time, there's a limit to what they can do. You can't have wings in Lucha. Right. Right? It's, sorry, Hawkman, you can't be in Lucha. Right. And so Lucha feels organically true to itself in a way, although they do maniacal, crazy things, that that feels like sort of a wrestling match in a carnival, right. as opposed to and the wrestling match is our story and the carnival is our scenery. Right. right? And our carnival can be a bright, colorful carnival, or it can be a drab, you know, carnival carnival. Right. And that depends on, on what we're telling. But I, I think that you're, you're right to put your finger on an inquisitive time sense thing, and that's where when Lovecraft looks at the Gothic, he's looking at something that, when he's writing, is 150 years old, and by now is 250 years old. Right. And so and when we do something with the Gothic, it's going to feel more natural and more connected than it probably did in 1800, where it's German terror stories, and uh, borderline pornography, and anti-Catholic ranting, and ghosts and giant pieces of armor falling out of the sky and crushing people, and Shakespearean illusions, and uh, incest, and uh, murder, and secret passages, and architectural tourism, and hating on Germany, and weather porn, and all of that is like, you are bananas. And so when people read the Gothic in 18-whatever, they were like, none of this works. And when you read a Gothic now, you're like, none of this works. <laughs> Unless you have a strong, uh, your Melbot the Wanderer guy who like, takes you from Horrible episode, two horrible episodes, as opposed to trying to pour it all into the life of some poor innocent um, uh, uh, protagonist. Will? I'm just curious in the story and scenery kind of uh, uh, cat, or, uh, uh, elements, where does character, do you think, fit in, or is it straddling, or is it to move back and forth between? Is it, does it belong to story, or does it belong to scenery in one of these? And how does that... The joy of character in role playing game design is it's not your problem. <laughs> if you have created a compelling story or at least a story with a lot of dangling fish hooks trailing along you will pull the characters into it if there are three empires one of them loyal to the old gods and the other two being dick empires the characters will join one of those empires and they'll be part of King Lear whether they wanted to or not because King Lear is a story with a lot of gravity to it a lot of hooks to it and you want to have non-player characters, and, the non, and a non-player character may both advance story, Darth Vader, but also be just drippings with scenery, Darth Vader, right? <laughs> and that, I think, is where a strong mashup feels. It's not like in Star Wars there is a samurai and a space knight. He's a samurai space knight. And, you know, some of them are a little closer than others, right? You know, the, the, the Ming is still just Ming, right? He's not Samurai Ming, except he's sort of an evil unit, because he's got force powers. But, you know, some of them are closer to one role or the other. 
And and so I, I look at, um, uh, I mean, you know, it, 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 they're, they're just, with characters, it's, it's always so tricky because our examples are all going to be movies and TV and media and, and comics. Right. Which are not the same as role-playing games, and everyone who thinks that they are winds up writing a role-playing game with nothing for the characters to do. And that's one of the things that I don't want us to do with these bricolage settings. I don't want it to be your job is to stand here and be amazed at how cool I am for coming up with the setting. Right. I, I want to let you, you know, be dragged into the story. It's it's the the champions that makes me think of it because the the way that these superheroes, the character is the mashup more than. The, the character is the story and the scenery in one little character package. Well, I mean, in theory, I mean that may be another element, right? A good, right. a good one that has fractal possibilities for character. A good right. one lets you be Darth Vader, right? Right. A good right. one lets you be uh, Batman. Yeah, a good one works, right? Well, you know, when Darth Vader shows up in your yeah. story, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and 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 so there is there is there is an element to where if you can, if you maybe this is just another live pragmatic example. If you find yourself effortlessly coming up with really good NPCs that fit. Maybe that's a sign that your that your mashup is working, assuming that they're that they're fitting both things, both elements, that they're fitting story and scenery, exactly, yeah. that they're smelling like both, that they have the DNA of both in them. I mean, they may favor one parent over the other, but if you're really working, you're like, oh, where am I going to put the mad scientist? There's no room for a mad scientist. It may be that you're forcing that scientist, then you don't have a good mashup, and maybe you need to add another spice, or maybe you need to take a spice away and stop trying to put mad scientists into it. And then that, I think, is going to be a... Currently, that's going to have to be a, a, a sniff test of a feel... Does it feel strange? Does it feel unheimlich? Does it feel um, uh, weird? Does it feel uh, adventure-y? Does, does fantasy essentially share that with superheroes? When, when you look at the fantasy genre and you see everything... From Game of Thrones to Fancy yeah. and Eye of the Overworld. I didn't want to turn this into genre theory because genre theory is fucked. Um, <laughs> genre exists in 99% of cases to tell bookstore owners what shelf to put the book on. It is entirely commercial. And I have a, a little riff that I do about Aristotle on how to define things without putting boundaries. That I do when I have to talk about genre theory, but I would prefer, for the purpose of this discussion, to just assume that we all understand that most things that we're talking about, story or scenery, are smaller than what we think of as genre. Mm -hmm. That, for example, cyberpunk is not all mysteries. Cyberpunk is just hard-boiled detectives, right? And just Chandlerian Amity hard-boiled detectives too. Uh, that uh, Star Wars is not all Japanese cinema or all martial arts movies. It is Hidden Fortress with a little dusting of a couple of other things that came along in the gravity of the Death Star. And that the coloration on it is just Flash Gordon. It's not Flash Gordon and Robert Heinlein. Right? And so although science fiction is a gigantic genre, just like fantasy is, just like supers are, um just like horror is treated as. Although, again, horror, like Slipstream, like the weird, is an emotional effect, which you can get in anything. Um, I think that talking about fantasy is unhelpful in, in this context. I mean, it can be helpful in other things, because it can be a, I don't want anything like that, right? Or I don't want to go to that part of the bookstore. 
because all the covers are terrible. So, so, so drawing on the examples that you gave, where, where you're talking about Hidden Fortress, um, you're, you're, you're not really, you're not even referencing then really a genre per se, so much as a particular instance yeah. of a story yeah. style. I, I think if you are trying to reference an entire genre in one setting, unless the setting's entire job is to reference that entire genre, like again, Feng Shui is, then you are biting off more than you can chew, and you're not necessarily going to be able to do a... a you're, you're going to be unable to tell which spices you should have put in, or, you know, okay, I'm going to put in all the green spices. That's not helpful. <laughs> That's actually actively counter-helpful. Um, and and not, so... You're not saying that when you're talking about this, you're not talking about fantasy, you're talking about King Arthur. Right, maybe or... Specifically, not King Arthur. Right, or Lord of the Rings, or... Right, uh, yeah. Like I said, with, with Daphne Ragnarok, again, to, you know, cue my own horn. Daphne Ragnarok, because I, I had the entire globe to play with, I cheated, and there are two genres, or there, there are two mashups in it. The, the West, uh, the, the United States, is basically... Conan the Barbarian, post-apocalyptic. That's my, my two, my two, my, 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 my story is Conan, my scenery is 1948 post-apocalypse. Now in the British Empire, my core story is Quatermass and James Bond to an extent, it's idiot British heroism. And then the flavor is Cold War. And that is a much more familiar place to play. Because it, you know, James Bond is that. You know, half of all British fiction was that. But I say Quatermass first because I want to pull it out and make it a little more cosmic. Right? I want to say that, and so maybe what it is, it's Cold War with the color of Quatermass, with the color of weird science. Right? But that's the, um, uh, but, but that's what Dr. Agnarok was. But I did not say Day After Ragnarok is fantasy plus uh, World War II. World War II, yeah. right? Because that's too big. Mm-hmm. The act. Is it a better idea to basically lay out ground rules and then just enter them into it, or is it a better idea to kind of get them in the middle of it and have them help? I think that, um, and again, this is going to sound mean. <laughs> to your players, not to you. I think that art designed by a committee is terrible. Um, there are very few exceptions. The King James Bible pops to mind, but that's about it. Uh, I think that if you are creating something, one of the advantages that you have, one of the necessities I think that you have with mashups, you have to have a unified something. There has to be a unified core. And if you let eight people talk about it, it's going to be this plus this plus accept that plus Jason hates hazelnuts, so we can't do that, right? It's going to be like trying to order pizza for all of you. You know, it's just going to devolve. So, no. But I would say, and this is not really a theoretical aesthetic question, this is just how to keep your game running, that if you know that there's some, like in my game group, there's one guy who doesn't like Lovecraft. He does not like Lovecraftian horror, doesn't want to play it, doesn't want to touch it, doesn't want to smell it, doesn't want to get near it. Obviously, for me, this is you know, the equivalent of one hand tied behind my back. But because he's a valuable player and we love him, we know that going into every setting, I'm not putting Lovecraft in. Even if it's a horror setting, it's not going to go Lovecraft. It's going to go any other sort of direction. So if you have players that you know are allergic, and I think that's a perfectly valid uh, analogy, they're allergic to some element, just know that you can't put it in. 
And you can sometimes, it, you can play around. I mean, the game Microscope, for example, lets you have the list of yeses and the list of noes. And so you can play with Microscope, and you can build settings with Microscope, and you can look at it, and you, you know, maybe you do it iteratively, right? Like looking for Pluto, every single star chart until one of them moves. You make Microscope game after Microscope game after Microscope game after Microscope game until you get one that really sings to you. And you say, what did that have in common with Star Wars? Right? I mean, maybe that's how you discover it. But I think that you can you can use microscope as a as a guide to looking at how to build things collaboratively. But I think if you're looking at aesthetics, you're looking at you as an artist building a feel. Um, getting player buy-in is unwise. Um, yeah, again, you don't want to squick people out on purpose. But on the other hand, you may say, "Oh, I know how to get Todd to feel uncanny." There's going to be a talking horse. Because Todd is messed up by the fact that horses weigh literally a ton and can kill you, but they never do for some reason. <laughs> I've heard Todd talk about it. Todd doesn't like the Lone Ranger. Todd, you know, when we see the the, the, the horse clans, he's always like, yeah, I don't trust the horse clans. they got horses. And so you're like, well, there's definitely going to be cavalry in this thing because I want to mess with Todd, right? And so that's a way that you use it, but that's because it's like your Michelangelo. You're painting something for the Pope. Right, you know that the Pope's going to want to see Jesus in there, so put Jesus in. <laughs> Ruth, you had a... Oh, I had kind of a comment on that, which is that there are sometimes playtests, or, or rather, I was playtesting something today, Five Fires by Tim Murphy, where it was a very collaborative world-building game, but the actual flavor and setting of the game is already there. So you can kind of get that collaborative element where even the players were fine, we were refining exactly what kind of city we lived in, but there were some very basic stuff that was already set out like when the, we'd make every game have the same sort of theme going through it, and then we'd refine it together with the fiasco method of full of the dice. Right. Full right. Dice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got, uh, according to my watch, we've got like one minute left. So if anyone's got a really bang-up aesthetic observation, Kevin, I would be happy to hear it. Um, if, <laughs> or if you got a question, uh, one final stem winder, we can, we can do that. But other than that... Um, Nothing. All right, Clark. Did, was that a thing, or was were you gesturing this was? I was. Uh, just going like that. All right. <laughs> thank you. Well, when when Clark goes like that, we know that we are done. So thank you very much for coming out and listening to me talk out loud and think sort of. Um, uh, you guys have been great to, to sort of shoot at and bounce off, and uh, I think that I at least have got something done. So thanks a lot.